We have Jim Bush joining us again, and he's coming back to tell the rest of his story. He's going to give a little bit of intro for those who missed last week's episode, and then we're going to go back into answering questions. Thanks. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Jim Bush. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family counselor um, and have been treating folks with uh, trauma uh, and overseeing their care uh, for about the last 33 years. And uh, now I'm in uh, management and oversee programs that serve those folks. Fair enough. Um, tell me about your experience training with the ACE score and tell us a little bit about the ACE score. Yeah, so uh, um, Dr. Felitti and Dr. Anda uh, got together. Um, gosh, now it's been a minute since this. I think it was around 1975 that they started the uh, ACE study, and it stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And they were looking to find correlations between obesity and some kind of uh, some correlation between trauma or abuse and uh, obesity. And so they identified 10 categories of abuse. Um, and they, uh, so it's like, you know, the, um, a parent uh, being in jail or in the hospital, being slapped or hit or on a regular basis, witnessing violence. So they kind of, and they kind of define it. And so every person would have a score from zero to 10. Um, you know, I think about uh, like, uh, I don't know, I can't remember now, it's been a minute, maybe 15% have one. I mean, if you have divorced parents, that's a one. So half the, probably half the kids uh, would get that as a one. But what we saw uh, is hundreds of correlations, especially if you got over four. And so it's not the frequency of events. So if you had one, if you had one thing happen every day for a hundred days, but it was the same thing, that would just count as one. So it's categories of abuse. And Dr. Anda would talk about uh, doses of abuse. Um, and so it's be like, how much trauma did you get? And the and so the the complexity, the more different kinds. So if you had four or more, the likelihood like of doing um, of shooting up drugs is like 4,800%, um, where more than if you had a, a zero or a one on the score. So what we saw was zero to four was, would incrementally, whether it would be, uh, you know, uh, drinking or, pr or promiscuity or smoking, um, or uh, pregnancy, teenage pregnancy, we would see increases. The more you had, the more likely it happened. But then some very physical outcomes. So more likely to get pregnant, more likely to miscarriage. More likely to smoke early on, more likely to get COPD, more likely to get lung cancer, and then more likely to die from lung cancer with somebody with a lower ACE score. So we started to see the more categories of abuse that people had, the more they would have a almost a compromised immune system where um, we saw that people were dying 20 to 25 years earlier than the general population if you had a score of four or higher. And so really it's the, the thought is a couple things. One, the amygdala in the brain doesn't feel safe and is always hypervigilant and always hyper alert to something bad happening. And then all these 
if you're smoking, doing substances, drinking, all these things the body's having to attend to on top of the hypervigilance. So uh, we think it just ages people the more uh, traumas that they've had. And now, the, you know, the one clear thing, um, if you could have a high a score and and have lots of resiliency and work through it and not have prevalence of things in your life, right? Um, uh, so just because you've had some bad things happen doesn't mean that you're directly going to have all these things. We just know there's a higher propensity for that. So it's really like a, you know, a predisposition. So, and then, and so there's lots of other things that also assess both you know, childhood and adult trauma, but it gives you a screen, an understanding of whether um, you're going to be predisposed to this. And one of the, the parts of the study said somebody even as old as 85 was still being affected by their, uh, by their A score those first 18 years. And so you're more likely to be on an antidepressant. You're more likely to try substances. You're more likely to try and kill yourself. Then, so the higher the score, the more all those things happen. So it's just kind of a warning sign. One, it's like if you have been using substances and you find out that your A score is high, it's like that that would be predictable. And the other side of that, on the prevention side with children, if they have a high A score and they're not doing those things, how do you actively work to prevent that from happening? So if they find an outlet to talk about their trauma, then maybe they won't use the substances that help numb the pain. So um, it's very useful, but it's also not a program or an answer. It's mainly a identifier. Guideline for the most part. Absolutely. And does trauma and abuse happen after 18? Of course, right? And sometimes it doesn't happen at all until then. And is that meaningful? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things somebody asked me was, one of the questions is that you witnessed your mother being abused by, you know, somebody. And that was a, an ace. And somebody said, well, I, ha I don't know what to count this, but a father was being abused by the mother. And so I talked to, you know, Dr. Felitti, and I said, do we count that? And he said, well, you wouldn't count it for the study, but it would have the same consequential meaning. So, um, you know, I think they just can't stray from the original definitions. Um, but the, the, you know, obviously, if they're both your caregivers, seeing one being injured by another is going to have probably the same effect. Maybe, maybe a little different if the mom is the primary caregiver, but you could have a stay-at-home dad being abused by the mom as the primary caregiver, you know. So uh, just some interesting parts of the, and that's a little bit more on the research side of, of, of that. But if you go to the CDC website and, and put in a study, you will find hundreds of correlation studies that show links between this trauma and lots of physical ailments. Um, what has been your experience with multi-generational trauma and substance abuse? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you see that extremely frequently both, right? And that's, I guess, my more mature goal than just helping people with trauma would say, uh, the more impactful way of looking at it is, can we stop this generational cycle, right? And um, I worked with an individual about 20 years ago who had been uh, sexually abused by dad from 2 to 17, came into my care at 17, um, and, you know, um, 
and was extremely damaged, and she started drinking at nine, so she would avoid remembering uh, dad's you know perpetration of her when she, when she was sleeping at night. So she was very damaged, but treatment in her teens. I mean, she did have a she did have an incident with a police officer where she punched him in the face and spent thirty days in jail. She was very bright, and she was able to kind of process through that, and she. You know, it ended up going on to college, uh, having a couple of kids, very highly functioning. And she knows that the work she did, I mean, both her parents, like her her mom actually had borderline personality disorder. She did not live with her. She lived with her dad, who then, you know, sexually abused her and, of course, denied it. The grandma didn't believe her that, that the dad was abusing it, abusing her like that. Um, and so... We see we see regularly those uh, generational uh, both, and we know on the substance use side there's a genetic factor that people are going to be more predisposed to addictions when they have the genetic part of addiction, but the trauma part and the abuse part is very very similar too because there's a, some kind of internal mechanism that that to like. If you're hurting me, and it's always been difficult for me to kind of describe, but you can see it very frequently. If you're abusing me, I don't want to be myself. So, like, you disassociate, so you leave your body. And sometimes the th- the experience that people sometimes say they have is they project it onto the perpetrator, right? And this, the, you you see these odd relationships sometimes with with people that like we see these studies where they've you know kidnapped somebody and they've been uh, with them for a year and this odd like connection in the abuse and so it's just um, it, it it does replicate itself very often um, very similarly to like when I was just in private practice I'd a lot of times have you know a dad bring in a kid he won't stop fighting at school he's getting kicked out over and over and it's like well what do you do when you're mad at your kid well I spank him and so like when, so when you get angry, you hit, and then when he gets angry and he hits, he's in trouble. And so sometimes trying to see that correlation that we're teaching them early and often how not to manage it, how not to handle it. And so uh, – but they generally are, go very much hand in hand. But to be able to, like this girl I was talking about, she knows – I mean, her her daughter's extremely bright, you know, honor roll, cheerleader, no abuse, like – now, has she lived a perfect life? No. She's struggled to maintain jobs. She's had a couple of marriages. She's been attracted to men that sometimes abuse her, right? But at the same time, she stopped the cycle of abuse, and she knows it. And that was that was more important to her than probably anything in her life was to have kids that didn't have the experience that she had. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's very difficult, though, because you also sometimes get ostracized by, oh, you think you're better than us, because you start setting limits. Well, if you're going to drink, if you're going to hit your kids, I don't want to be around. Oh, you think you're better than us, right? There's, uh, I mean, some very sad things, even educationally. I, I saw a young man that we worked very hard to get through high school, and uh, his family wouldn't come to his graduation because, oh, you think you're better than us now. And so the only people he had at his graduation were people from the group home that he lived in. And so sometimes just some, you know, tragic things like that. But we've seen lots of frequency of of this going on for generations. And and so if you can get somebody the 
the understanding of the power where they can stop that for generations in the future, that's pretty powerful. But it's also, you know, very difficult. Yeah. Um, no, I can I can relate that uh, breaking trauma bonds and not allowing abuse in your life can be very isolating and lonely. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, life-changing for others, right? But there's a cost. There's certainly a cost to that. Um, yeah. Um, how would you like the mental health field to improve in the next couple of years? I mean, as much as I want to believe that we've reduced stigma, I think lots of people still don't get help because they don't want to be judged. That's where in some ways telehealth has opened some doors where people can get care from their, you know, their couch, their own couch with their laptop or their phone. Uh, So I think uh, trying to continue to reduce stigma, I think we continue to see, I think the more like Simone Biles comes out and says, hey, I had anxiety. Uh, People that we look up to, the more they own it, the more they talk about it, the more but, but we also get to, it's, okay, well, I'm, ex- I'm going to accept it for other people, but not my kid or not my spouse or not me, right? And so I think we got a lot, still a long way to go with that. Um, and then I think we have to just continue to find better and better ways that make a functional difference for people, right? Like, uh, to me, it's always about... Um, trying to help somebody manage their own lives. Like for a long time in mental health, uh, people thought it was fine to see your therapist for 10, 15 years. And and I think the better model now is that we try and say, how do we help you, you know, instead of giving you a fish, teach you how to fish uh, that we don't really have as clinicians, you know, lots of special things. We just have processes and systems that can help you work. So, where, where you can go on and, like, manage your life better. I mean, part of it is there's not enough providers. So, like, you want to get in, you want to be seen weekly, you maybe get in a month, and then you can get in every two weeks at best, and it's really staggered. So, like, part of that, I'd like to see more people going through the field, which also comes back down to pay. Like, pay is not good in our field. The work is very hard. Um, I mean, we are we are really struggling in our field to get people, you know, in a residential setting. There's there's you know, lots of the trauma is so bad. We see lots of, you know, violence, abuse, self, self abuse, like uh, and then with the pandemic, they've been they've been not people have not been around them to know the stuff's going on. So I guess like, you know, trying to get more, reduce stigma, get more availability and continue to try and be the best trained that we can be. What can, what else can we learn from people that have gone through it? And that's where the addition of uh, peer supports has been useful. So people that uh, came out on the other side, they, they worked through some very difficult things, are now helping us as certified peer recovery specialists to help people engage in treatment. So, hey, I was there too, and I know it's hard to trust, but this is helpful. So it's And, and we now pay people that had life experiences to share their life experiences with people to tell them, hey, here's what a um, 
here's what an intake is. They're going to ask you 12 pages of questions, and they're not going to help you much today. And then you'll get assigned a therapist, and that therapist is really important that you connect with them. Do you want a male or a female? Is it meeting your needs? How would you know if it meets your needs? You know, how will you know if you are less depressed? Uh, and so, like, trying to define what you want out of it and take control over your own care. Like, you're the one investing in it. You know, as a clinician, it's not, I mean, we can point you that direction, but it's always best if if we're just helping you meet your goals. And so therapy, especially in substance use, it used to be in your face, you're an addict, you're in denial, that didn't really help people too much. Now we say, hey, where do you want to go? And I'll help you try and keep you on track to get there. So it's less confrontational. It's more what we would call joining. So we, we're joining with our client. And... They're going to say, hey, we're going to say, are we getting there or not? And it's only, you know, you as a client, you as the patient should dictate whether it's working or not. If it's not working, there's lots of things. So like, let's say relaxation and meditation, there's dozens of different ways to do that. If one doesn't work for you, we can try different ones. So I, you know, I really like it when clients say that's not working. And as a therapist, I want to somebody to say, that's not working, or I don't like that style. And so what I do at the end of sessions is say, was there anything that didn't go well today? Would you have liked another style? Do you want a female? You know, especially when I work a lot with people that have trauma, like trying to be very clear about that, that we have plenty of work. We have plenty of people to see. We want it. We want, we know we'll get better outcomes if you're getting your needs met, if you're getting what you want out of therapy, if something doesn't work, like, you know, when you talked about your own little personal story, that wasn't very helpful. Okay, I'll make a note. I thought it might be helpful to see it. But, you know, like, they, re you know, good therapists will really positively respond to critical feedback. And then you're more likely to get what you want. What we generally see is, ooh, that didn't really work. And then they don't come back. And then we spend weeks calling them to, to schedule when they don't want to come back and then they feel crappy that they're saying they don't want to come back and then everybody feels crappy right so just that's the other thing is how will we know when we're done generally people go to four or five sessions and then they're done well after that then we chase them for three more and then we both feel like failures again so letting people say i'm done is very important to me like okay i got what i needed i'm done i don't feel the need or no i need to keep going or i'll come back like we we see it as people have episodes of care so it gets bad for a while when they adjust to that they don't need it as much and then maybe three months later they need a little recharge but there's no like way it has to be you don't have to be seen every week um, you don't have to like fix it all. Like all I want to fix is this. If this was better, I could function, right? And so, really encouraging people to to give that feedback. And we know that the outcomes are better if the clinician just asks those questions. That did you get what you needed? What can I do better? Um, we know just those asking those questions, people will have better outcomes. So. Um, it's important to guide your own care. Yeah, I think um, the whole, you know, if you say something's not working, you know, I feel like I think some people are afraid to hurt their therapist feelings. Exactly. And I'm guilty of that as well. But um, just hearing you say that makes me feel validated. 
Well, and, you know, what what I learned one time was if you don't get critical feedback, you're not making it safe enough to to give critical feedback. And also, like, there is that protection. You know, clients do kind of look up to you. But, like, if we're not doing the best, if we're not making the most difference, we're not fulfilling our goals either, right? And so, um, and you don't have to say, you know, you're an ass that sucked, right, or whatever. But you can say like that, I didn't really – uh, that didn't really work for me. And be like, oh, okay. And, and you know, like I said, there's so many different ways to go about it. We're sometimes guessing, okay, there's, you know, there are probably 10 or 12 relaxation models that I would go through. And I'm like, hmm, this seems to fit. But it may, if someone says, no, I don't really like that, that's, I'm not going to do it again. Let's try something else until we find the right one. But I, I do think, I mean, I'm sure I've done it too, like not said something when it was like, that wasn't very useful. But it, it is what a good therapist is going to do. And what we're, what we're in this field to do is make a difference. And if we're not making a difference, you know, it's not helping anybody. So I would just encourage people to own their own care. And if it doesn't, it's not working, don't keep doing it. Okay. With that person. I, I mean, keep doing it, but try and find some, you have the right to find somebody that's a better match. And sometimes it's personality. Sometimes it's strategy. Um, but like, you know, you should be respected with your course of treatment and supported in whatever you're wanting to do. Like our job is not to judge your path. Our job is to get you where you want to go. And and that's what's different in my career was we were a little bit more, you know, also, you know, oh, we're eight to five and you have a job and then you don't come it because you can't get off work. And then we say, Oh, you're resistant. Like, Oh no, I can't get off work. You know, like we, our field has, has been a little self-absorbed. So it's like, are you doing evening hours? Are you, so like, we have to think about, um, we, we try, you know, one time the, um, uh, organization used to say, uh, people don't fail plans do. And, and really trying to say, you know, people aren't trying to, to, you know, resist treatment, like sign up and then not do it. But if they got three jobs, maybe, you know, eight to five doesn't work, right? And so trying to figure out uh, how do we actually serve people instead of like judge them. I think the field sometimes gets too judgy about our clients, even though we even, you know, all of us therapists have our problems too, right? Like, we want our therapist to stay till seven because we have patients till six, right? So, um, but it's hard work and, but it's very gratifying. And especially for me, probably the most successful thing is when you're able to stop that generation of abuse. That's, uh, that makes my whole year when you find a case like that, because you just think about how many dozens of people could be affected by one person's stance. And they might have suffered to do that. Uh, and sometimes people don't have kids because they don't want to bring them to that. And so they're going to stop it that way. But, um, but I think it's, it does, it takes a lot of courage and bravery and strength. Um, and it's hard. It's all, it continues to be hard, but the power of not replicating harm and, and, you know, we as a system have to still keep saying, you know, are we punishing symptoms? Like we never want to re-traumatize somebody by punishing symptoms. And that's where I get worried about people with borderline. If we judge them about their symptoms, 
we're re-traumatizing them and they don't want to be like that. But it's very, it's easy to judge because the behavior, the symptoms are ugly, right? They're very personal and very harming. And so like trying to just deflect it and say, then set a limit. When you talk to me like that, I'm going to walk away because it hurts me too much, right? Like versus, you know, losing your, you know, losing it on them, which is the, the instinct because they can say horrible things and very hurtful and they know it, but they're really responding to covering their pain, but then they create so much pain. It's just hard. It's a vicious cycle. It very much so. And they, their lives generally always stay that way. They don't, it's hard to recover from, I mean, you can get better, you can manage it, you can manage to a, to a certain point, but that hole's going to be there. And so either you can cope with it or you, you know, just have lots of failed relationships with people that you love. Yeah. It can be very painful. Yes. Um, what advice would you give trauma victims? Oh, I think most of all, probably to try and get help, try and that, that people can and do recover every day, that, that the power of stopping generational abuse, but also finding somebody that's knowledgeable and knows what they're doing and can actually help you. And if they're not helping you, find someone else. That I think that's, um, but it's really hard to go at it alone, you know, and, uh, and yet like my for 35 years, I've dealt with pretty much only trauma. And, and so like people know, you know, they don't, they know how to help. They know how they, it's not like they're going to go, like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. that's the worst story I've ever heard. I mean, it's, it's also, it's also hard on providers, you know, that there's a secondary trauma that I said when to myself, when I left graduate school, if I ever got used to hearing these stories, I'd need to get out. And I can say to this day, you know, every day I hear stories that I just, it's a struggle with, right? That a life experience of a young person was so tragic. And then I also continue to be inspired. If they can go on through their day and fight to see another day, you know, my little things about my little life don't seem so bad. So I try and gain courage from them. And I also try and tell them, you know, your strength, your bravery helps me get, be stronger. Because, you know, like, and, and the girl that I told you about that was molested by her dad, I'm like, if you can deal with this, life is not going to be that bad because there is nothing worse. And, and she's like, that's right. In fact, she, she posted something today on, on Facebook about, uh, about, you know, someone believed in me once and now I made changes in my, you know, community. And like, that's powerful stuff. Uh, and you don't, you rarely get, you know, much of that knowledge when they're better, they leave and you don't hear from them. Uh, but at the same time, you just have to know, you just have to be committed to not being judgmental, not taking it personally and, and doing your best. I always tell people, especially in residential, when, if we give them our best every day, they're still going to struggle in a big way. This is not an easy course. So we can't show up halfway to work. Like, we got to give them everything we got, every resource we got, whether it's for housing or relationships or getting off drugs or finding a new way that you don't hurt yourself, whatever it is. But you know, even at our best, life is going to be tough. So it's a, it's a big commitment, but it's also a life filled with – knowing you did the right thing. You put your head on your pillow at night saying, I did my best to help, right? And and sometimes, a lot of times, you feel like you're not 
making a difference, but I think we are. Okay. Um, what are some innovative treatments out there that you're a fan of in the mental health field? I mean, I think we've, we've probably covered them like in the EMDR, the efficacy there, um, you know, the DBT, trauma-focused CBT, um, the, the better outcomes now is a model that, that talks about those questions that gauges those things that helps you really, it helps you see if you're on the trajectory of getting better like you should or that you've stalled. It also helps predict whether people are probably going to drop out of therapy because if you don't get enough back, you're going to drop out. So that's a model that, that works. Um, you know, there's, we've seen, um, a lot of efficacy with very severely depressed people where they uh, still use the electric shock therapy in a very different way. They used to do few episodes, very strong and powerful, um, and, and lots of damage to the memory. Uh, what we still, what we see to this day is, you know, maybe several sessions with low doses. We see less of the damage to the memory piece. And sometimes people go from, you know, perennially suicidal and almost hallucinating to functioning. The weird thing is, you know, one, you don't want to do it unless there's no other alternative because it's risky. And two, we still don't really know why it works. You know, there's a lot in psychiatry and psychology that in the brain that we just don't know why it works. And same with medications. There's usually something that works. We don't really know why a lot of times, or it takes a lot of different combinations or different trials. I wish we could get better, and I guess there is uh, some some technology, the genome <clears throat> therapy, where on certain diagnoses they figured out, like, they can read your genomic pattern and say you will respond better to this classification than that, and so they they jump to past ones that they're pretty sure won't work. So if we could get better at that, that applied to more diagnostic things. I mean, I think the frustrating thing, you're super depressed, you're suicidal. Well, here's some antidepressants. It'll start working in a month. That's a very long time for somebody who's severely depressed, right? And and like a psychiatrist said, it doesn't like magically start working on the 30th day. It's, you know, 1% a day or 2% a day. Like it's, but that's just too slow. Like how do we help people feel better quicker? And so getting the right medications is part of it, getting the right therapy, getting the right therapist, um, and being able to tell doctors and therapists when it's not working so we can try something different. But having people wait in pain, I think, is is we can do better. Um, what do you do for self-care? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, one of the things, like in the trauma work that I do, we – uh, I, we do require everybody that we work with to have a self-care plan. We don't dictate what it is. We don't enforce that it happens. But, you know, I, uh, I have a hour drive to work and an hour drive home, and that's where I spend a lot of my time, uh, you know, de-stressing. I've been, <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of jazz and, uh, and some classical music. Uh, Bach has some upbeat stuff. What I like about those two models of music is there's no words to detract me. So I have to like be more genuinely like, what does this music make me feel? Which takes me off of, you know, the, the abuse that I heard earlier or whatever. I like to play golf. I love uh, sports. Uh, we've got three big dogs that keep us very busy uh, working on the house. Uh, I got a couple kayaks that I like to use. So, you know, 
the more physical, the better, because it's very, you know, very much mind stress. Like I could come home so tired and have sat at a desk doing nothing, like, quote, nothing all day, right? But it is very important because otherwise, you know, we won't survive. And I learned in the first six months in the field in the group home in California, it's like, you either leave it at work or you won't survive. Like, you know, your first instinct, I want to take this kid home. They're so sweet. And you didn't see the rage. And you also are a 22-year-old that can't do anything about it, right? And so you really have to compartmentalize work. But you also have to, you know, find ways to know that you're doing everything you can to help the people that you serve. You're not judging them. You're supporting them. And you're finding the best ways you can, and you're trying to encourage that with the people that you work with. One last question is off the books. Um, how has this all impacted your faith? Mm. You know, my faith has been a really strong uh, part of where I started with all this, and it, it, it really is something that still drives what I do, like – um, I, I've always wanted to do uh, mission work. My parents, my dad and my mom went to Haiti uh, 11 years in a row and did medical mission work where they pulled teeth. And, you know, my dad was a doctor. My mom was a physical therapist. So they went with about 10 or 12 people. But it's like I don't have the time to take a week off or do that. But so I try and do my my mission is every day. Like I pray on the way to work. I pray on the way home to try and be the most effective with the people that I'm working with and to be quite frankly what I've been doing every day in the last couple weeks is just being grateful finding you know multiple things to be grateful for in the midst of um, all these bad things happen to so many people both in the you know in the world the pandemic the you know there's so much negative trying to stay away from the news and I I feel like I need data you know uh, around the pandemic because we have uh that recently had to put a stop on admissions because uh, we had to, we had in January we had a 73 staff we had 37 COVID outbreaks and so trying to stay uh, open was important but at the same time you know trying to not see all the bad because it's just your brain just gets worn out on. This isn't a safe place, if you, you know, is what it feels like over time. So, uh, but it, but I feel like it strengthens my faith in terms of my job, my responsibility to be there for somebody else. Okay. Well, that's it. Um, thank you for being on my show, and uh, thanks for being patient with all the technology issues we've had. <laughs> Mostly on my end, I will say. <laughs> But yeah, I'm glad we were able to do this. This was uh, this was great, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts. And certainly, they're mostly just my thoughts, right? And and my life experiences, and they're not everybody's. But I'm pretty passionate about them for me, and so I appreciate the opportunity to share it. All right, thanks, guys, for listening. We'll be tune in next Thursday, and you can always uh, follow us on. Uh, social media and uh, on the website at rachelonrecovery.com. Thanks for listening.